Well, we have a treat for you this morning uh, as we continue in our Explore God series. Uh, these are exploration of eight weeks of questions that everybody is asking, that we all wonder about God, about life, about purpose, and how life works. And so CT, our newest elder, will be bringing the message this morning. We're all super excited about that. So he's going to come up here in a minute after I read the scriptures. Um, we had a chance to commission him at our last leaders huddle. And we're really excited to see what God has put on his heart this morning. The scripture this morning is from the book of Romans, chapter 8, starting in verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, I'm CT. Nice to meet some of you guys. Uh, so this week's topic has to be at the top of the list uh, for Life's Big Questions, no matter what your background is. If it wasn't yesterday, it is today. Um, when we look out at the world, there is just so much suffering out there. Um, a month ago, I was thinking maybe we'll talk about the earthquake in Morocco or the flooding in Libya. Yesterday, it became the explosion of violence in the Gaza Strip. And this morning, we woke up to news of a horrible earthquake in Afghanistan. The pace at which tragedies are unfolding around our world today is completely mind-numbing. And yet, suffering isn't just something that's happening out there. It's happening in our own lives. It's happening inside of us. Friedrich Nietzsche famously said that to live is to suffer, and to suffer is to find some meaning in the suffering. And our desire to find meaning in that suffering is the exact kind of thing that drives us to church this morning. Our instinct is to ask why. Why would a loving, all-powerful God allow pain and suffering so horrible as that which we see in the world today? My goal is not to get to a neat conclusion uh, on this topic. Definitely not in the next 30 minutes, uh, because pat answers will not do this topic justice because the philosophical question is actually the easy one to ask. It's the personal one that feels impossible to really fix. How is God gonna address my hurt? I've been living with this condition all my life. Why won't he heal me? 
Why did my child have to suffer? What about whole categories of people that are suffering today? I should preface here that I'm not an expert on the matter. I'm just a fellow journeyer in life trying to make sense of the suffering that I'm experiencing myself. My hope, though, is to share a perspective rooted in what the Bible says that might give us hope for this life even as we encounter suffering, not just for enduring it, but growing, overcoming, and hopefully maturing in the midst of it. So most uh, skeptics will tackle this question of why suffering in one of two ways. The first is to assert God must not exist because if he did, he wouldn't allow suffering. And the second is to say, maybe he does exist, but if he does, he probably doesn't care very much about us. Both of these attitudes do make an assumption, though, that just because you or I can't readily think of a good reason for suffering, that it must not exist. Yet if we look at our own lives, we can find many examples of painful experiences that are later proven to have been for the better. Job loss that prompts us to pursue something more fulfilling in our career. Breakups that were painful at the time but turned out to be dodged bullets. These experiences are objectively unpleasant. And yet, when we look back, we're glad they happened. I have two kids. One is six and the other is two, three and a half. And we sometimes allow them to watch TV after bath time. The trouble always starts, though, when the episode ends and I reach for the remote control to turn off the TV. You would think, based on my three-and-a-half-year-old's reaction, that she is suffering the most excruciating pain known to humankind. <laughs> but my older son is a little more sanguine about it, right? He has learned that not all things that he wants are best for him, and watching TV all night is not the best idea. If that's the difference that two and a half revolutions around the sun can make in my two kids, well, how do we know for such certainty that the God who created this universe and exists outside in time of space might not have good reasons per, for permitting the suffering that we encounter? Fine, you say, maybe God has his reasons, but whatever they are, they're clearly so incompatible with my thinking that he isn't worthy of my allegiance or attention. One of the problems with this reasoning is that you need to have well-founded grounds on which to judge God. To rage with indignation at the injustice of this world requires you to have a credible standard of morality to legitimate that anger. But if we start from an atheistic point of view, where do reasonable grounds of morality come from? If life is only what we can observe and measure, then humanity is a byproduct of self-replicating genetic sequences. You live, you die, the strong eat the weak, there is no such thing as right or wrong, really, except what we happen to have imagined in the neural clusters of our minds. We can't have it both ways by saying on one hand that we're just a ball of dirt hurtling through the universe with no purpose, while on the other hand holding deep convictions about justice and compassion that we then accuse a non-existent God of mismanaging. Logically, there are two options for us. The first is to be a stoic, to believe that God doesn't exist and concede that suffering is neutral. There's no reason to be annoyed because in the end, the only thing that's guaranteed is entropy. Many who take this stance will also say that because there's no meaning in life, then meaning is what we make of it. And this appeals to the individualism and self-determination that we so highly value in our culture, especially today. But respectfully, saying that we define the meaning in life while believing it doesn't exist at the same time requires both hubris and self-deception. Superficially, this approach has emotional appeal, but relying on a made-up life meaning to get you through the real and difficult challenges of life day in and day out 
is existentially not that different from thinking you'll be able to climb Mount Everest if I just remember to pack the warmest jacket in my closet. It requires a huge leap of faith, not in God, but in the self. Or there's a second option, which is to concede that the idea of an all-powerful God is maybe the best explanation we have for our collective sense that morality and right or wrong do exist, and that this God might have good reasons for suffering that are worth our time and effort to discover. From that starting point, we can begin to both ask the question of the why and to have a who to ask it to. Now, I know some of you are thinking, but how did, God, uh, how did suffering even enter the picture in the first place? Please hold that thought because we will get to it shortly. But first, let's look at the scripture that uh, Cindy just read for us. Today's passage comes from arguably one of the most important books of the Bible. The book of Romans is Paul's letter to the church in Rome, written some 25 years after Jesus' life, ministry, death, and resurrection. It's considered by many to be Paul's magnum opus, and it contains his most complete explanation of the gospel, a word which means good news, specifically the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. And the verses that we read in Romans 8 are right at the intersection of the gospel and today's topic on suffering. I'd like to propose three takeaways uh, from these verses, which we'll then unpack one by one. First is that God allows suffering to create a good in us that will eclipse the suffering itself. Second, the world's brokenness points us to God by design. Third, as ultimate proof that he cares, God came to be with us, suffered on our behalf, and is meeting us still where we are. Let's talk about the first. Right from the start, Paul tells us that the first thing we should know is that there is a point to suffering. Verse 18 says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. This first sentence tells us some very important things about God's plan. Our suffering has a purpose, and that purpose is glory. Now, the word glory can feel a little like religious jargon, so let's try to pack it, unpack it a little bit. What Paul describes here isn't something that's a light shining from heaven or some magnificent structure that we'll be able to admire from afar. He says that the glory is actually going to be revealed inside of us. In our society, glory is often attributed to people that achieve remarkable accomplishments, athletes, visionaries, inventors, artists. Um, and then there's other everyday heroes that accomplish extraordinary things by acting in kindness and courage, healthcare workers, first responders, the military. But what type of glory results from suffering? Here I think our own lived experience provides some clues. I'm talking about situations where suffering sometimes makes us better human beings, setbacks that make us more resilient, injuries or illness that give us empathy for others in the same situation and that help us cherish life, hardship and discrimination that give us compassion and a heart for justice. Even natural disasters have the ability to rally strangers together in a way that nothing else quite can. These examples illustrate how some important aspects of our humanity are specifically accessed and magnified through suffering. C.S. Lewis, turn-of-the-century literature professor, an atheist turns Christian. If you don't know him, you'll know him now because he's our favorite source of quotes in this series. <laughs> Said it like this. I suggest to you that it is because God loves us that he gives us the gift of suffering. You see, we are like blocks of stone out of which the sculptor carves the forms of men. The blows of his chisel, which hurt us so much, are what make us perfect. Now, I want to be careful to recognize that Obviously, not all forms of suffering we see in this world can be readily explained in this analogy, at least on this side of eternity. 
but the framing does help us see how God might have good reasons for allowing suffering that we might not have the ability to grasp just yet. What's astonishing here is that Paul says that the glory of God, uh, that God is working to reveal is so huge in scale that it won't even be worth comparing to the suffering that precedes it. This is a big claim made even bigger by the next few verses because Paul doesn't minimize suffering and pain at all. He actually doubles down on it, on just how extensive the brokenness of a reality is. Let's read on verses 19 to 23. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hopes that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Okay, that is a lot to unpack, so let's try to take it slow. Um, for those of you who don't know, Paul was a lawyer by training, so it sh those who do know it aren't surprised by what we're reading on the screen here. But the key takeaway is that the world's brokenness points us to God by design. The fact that God is working some towards something greater doesn't actually minimize or paper mache over our suffering. Paul states here that it is not, all is not right with the world. Verse 20 says, the creation itself is in a state of frustration. Verse 21, our world is marching slowly but surely into entropy. The cycle of life, death, and decay is a guaranteed source of suffering for all of us. Paul is emphatic, though, that this is not how it should be. All of creation is actually waiting for something better to be true. But the source of this brokenness is not God. We learn in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, that the universe that he created was perfect. Humans and nature lived in harmony and everything was characterized as good. But when humanity chose to disobey God and reject him, which is what we mean when we use the word sin, our physical universe somehow shared in that fall. Late pastor and author Tim Keller, second favorite source of this series, describes the effect of our sin on our world in the following way. Nature isn't what ought to be or what it was created to be. It's alienated from both from us and from itself. There's relentless pain that comes from first to last as things decay. In this creation, no experience is untainted by pain. More critically, our rejection of God alienates us not just from the world around us, but to him. This dissociation from our creator is the root of our suffering. And it's been caused by our, our choice to reject him and make ourselves the gods of our own lives. And it's why we inevitably fall short of our own moral convictions, wherever they come from. It's why none of the things we pursue will bring us lasting fulfillment and happiness, whether it's success, adoration, achievement, or even justice and impact that we pursue. Even human love is guaranteed to fail. Every single person who is near and dear to us will eventually be lost to death at some point. C.S. Lewis describes this really well. A baby feels hunger, there is such thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, there is such thing as water. I find, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Paul also explains that what we really long for is to become children of God. In fact, it's repeated three times in the passage that we just read, first in verse 18 and then verse 21, and then again in verse 23 with slightly different wording, referring to it as our adoption into sonship with God. 
Rejection of God is what separates us from him and causes suffering. So the healing of our relationship by being adopted back into his family and becoming his children is what gives us hope. Verses 25 and 26, oh, 24 and 25 complete that thought. For this hope, in this hope we are saved, but hope what is, that is seen is no hope at all. For hope, uh, sorry, who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not have, we wait for it patiently. We haven't experienced the full restoration of this yet. Things are not yet perfect, but it's the anticipation of that future glory that gives us hope in the face of suffering. Okay, now this is all very well and good, but it sounds a little bit like a neat story. Where is God in all the news headlines that we just read? Where is he in the hurt that me and my family are experiencing today? All this talk of glory and hope can feel distant and dim in the face of real pressing suffering in our lives. It wasn't so long ago that I found myself in a crisis that asked, found myself asking these questions on a daily and sometimes hourly basis. If you've been coming to Current some time, you've heard me share this story about a year and a half ago. At the time, Eileen and I had been trying to have kids for several years, and we were wondering why nothing seemed to be happening. I had a complicated medical history, so we decided to run some tests, and those tests proved our worst fears to be true. I'm a childhood cancer survivor, and the chemotherapy and radiation I got was known to potentially affect fertility later in life, and that was the case for me. I still remember sitting on the couch in our living room with Eileen, just holding each other and crying as we read through the doctor's notes and lab results. Having children was something we deeply desired. It was part of the future that we envisioned together, and I had no idea how much it meant to me until that moment. I was totally devastated. Like many of you, I'm sure, we were achievement-oriented people. We set goals, worked hard, reaped the results. In this situation, however, we were completely uh, unable to have any control. I was frustrated and angry. I was mystified as to why God seemed to be dragging us through this process, withholding children from us. Why would he do that? Why to us? Why is it so hard for us when it seems so easy for other people? What took us years to learn through that experience, and what Paul tells us clearly in the next few verses, is that whatever God's reason for allowing suffering, we can be confident that it cannot be because he doesn't care. Because this brings us to our third point, which is that at ultimate proof that he does care, God came to be with us, suffered on our behalf, and continues to meet us where we are. Paul writes in verse 26 and 27, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans, and he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. God is not some distant observer sitting behind a velvet rope in heaven, and he's not toying with us. Instead, it says here that God sends his Spirit to be with us, that advocates us and with wordless groans, and here's one of the most unique and powerful things that the God of the Bible offers us. When we're going through some sort of devastation and suffering, the last thing we need is someone to come alongside us and tell us something trite like, it's gonna be okay, or God has a plan, which we just discussed he does. But a good friend knows that in that moment, what, he, what we need is someone to sit with us in silence, to be with us in our suffering and to empathize. And that's exactly what this verse says God does for us. Even when we don't have strength, we're at a loss for words on how to respond because suffering is hard and overwhelming and impossible to make sense of. 
His spirit is right there with us. It groans with us, and it advocates for us. Why does God do this? It's because that is the nature of the God of the Bible. He intensely loves and cares for us, even when we barely know it. One of my personal favorite Bible verses comes from the book of Psalms, a collection of poems and songs. The 139th Psalm describes the way that God cares about us like this. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to me. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. If I were to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. So this God who obsesses and cares about us like a parent does over a child is pursuing us. He knows every moment of pain and suffering before we experience it, and he sits beside us in that pain. Can you imagine the God of the universe advocating to himself on our behalf? We're like a patient with a broken bone, and our healing requires physical therapy that is painful and difficult. And God is the physical therapist who also happens to be our dad, guiding us through with all the love and patience that a parent has. The pain we experience in the treatment is heartbreaking to him too, but he understands that the path to healing requires it and guides us with exquisite care and attention because we are his children. With each fertility procedure that Eileen and I went through, God was also plying our hearts and relieving us of the illusion of control, orienting us to him instead of having children, which was at the time what felt like salvation to us. It was becoming clear that nothing that we could say or do or try was going to have any real impact on the ultimate result, regardless of what the clinical studies or the numbers implied. If we were to have kids, it would be because God was going to make it happen. He wanted Eileen and I to arrive at a place of total helplessness so that there would be room in our hearts to really seek him out and rely on him every step of the way. Now, I want to strongly recommend against the urge to draw any causal relationship between our faith journey and the fact that God did eventually grant, uh, grant us children. Are we more grateful for them because of the painful journey it took to have them? Definitely. Did that experience open our eyes to see and empathize with others who are in the same uh, situation or other situations? Obviously. But God is not an algorithm that we can manipulate into getting what we want with the right inputs. Whether we ended up having kids is actually beside the point. Because the reason God goes through the trouble to allow suffering and then journey alongside us is because he loves us. And our having a relationship with him is far more important than any one thing we might be wanting in this life in the grand scheme of eternity. Whether it's healing from sickness, the gift of children, or the removal of some kind of setback. Finally, verse 28 says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God doesn't work in spite of suffering. And there is nothing to be found here to promise that he's going to take it away or make it less. God works through suffering. It says that God is working through all things. This includes both the good and the bad. Again, C.S. Lewis, our guy. God whispers in our pleasures, speaks through our conscience, and shouts in our pain. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And the greatest example of this is exemplified in the person of Jesus. If you're wondering how Christianity differs from world religions, here's your answer. The God of the Bible knows and understands our suffering because he'd gone through it himself. He suffered injustice, abandonment, rejection, torture, and death. 
Here we have the strongest case against an indifferent God. It was he that walked in our shoes, suffered in our pain, all in pursuit of us. He is the good shepherd who leaves his flock to find the one lost sheep. Each of us is that sheep, and he pursues us with the intensity and passion that we read about in Psalms earlier. Paul writes in another letter, this time to the Philippians, chapter 2, 6 through 8. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus' death and resurrection on our behalf isn't just a reason for hope in us, it's also an example for us. He shows us that even though suffering is difficult, the glory that will be revealed in us will be far greater. His crucifixion was violent and horrific, but his resurrection eclipsed that because it opened a path for all of humanity to be restored in relationship with him. God isn't asking us to endure anything that he hasn't endured himself as he experienced as a human in Jesus. Our suffering is making us the people that we are meant to be. We may not know exactly why or how or when it's gonna happen, but Jesus' death and the companionship of his spirit is his guarantee, his promise to us that we won't be disappointed. The path to wholeness runs through the hardship of this physical therapy for our souls. We need the great physical therapist by our side to complete that treatment. So, as we take a step back and survey what we've covered in the last couple minutes, this is how I would summarize Romans 8, uh, how it addresses the problem of pain and suffering. It rejects the idea that suffering is meaningless. It rejects the idea that God is unloving or indifferent or incompetent. Rather, it asserts that God is working through everything, including our suffering, to bring us into a state of ultimate flourishing that he has always intended. And that state is characterized, first and foremost, by our being restored into his family as his children. And this is all made possible by Jesus walking in our shoes, experiencing our pain, and paying the ultimate price of death as a consequence of our sin. And that we could become adopted as sons and daughters as into his family if we choose to accept it. The ultimate sacrifice is proof that he cares and what enables us to have a restored relationship with him. It gives us hope in the midst of suffering, and he sends his own spirit to be with us so that we will never journey through this alone. For those of us here who are still exploring God, does the Bible's account of suffering, our role in it, and his plan to redeem us resonate with you? If that's the case, consider taking a step forward in faith by receiving Jesus' gift of salvation. Write that in your response card and hand it in, or come up to someone on the prayer team over there once service is over. If not, that is totally fine too. We invite you to continue that conversation in our explore group with a friend if someone brought you here, or telling us about other questions that you might have in the response card. I'd be, love, I'd be happy to chat with you after service, and I'm sure David or others on staff might be too. For those of us who identify as followers of Jesus, when we encounter suffering, are we holding to the hope that is promised here in Romans 8? Do we seek God's spirit to help and advocate for us, or do we try to fade things alone in isolation? And when we encounter the suffering in others' lives, are we quick to offer pat answers to reduce the awkwardness? Or are we following Jesus' example, meeting people where they are, sitting and suffering with them, and then, when appropriate, sharing the reason for the hope that's in us? We've only scratched the surface of this topic. 
And I want to recognize that everyone comes to this conversation from a different place. So in the spirit of exploration, I'd encourage us to be aware of this uh, and to make space for each other as we continue these conversations, whether after service, uh, in current groups, or other forums. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do not understand suffering. Um, it is overwhelming and impossible for us to even comprehend. But we're grateful because you do and that you also understand us and have given us a way to live through and not just survive, but to grow through suffering because of Jesus. We ask that um, for those of us that are still asking and exploring questions, that you would reveal yourself to them uh, and prove yourself to be true in this way uh, and help those of us who have made a decision to follow you to really follow more closely uh, in light of that reality. In your name we pray, amen.